All right, uh, we're continuing in our series of, in Jonah. Uh, so if you have your Bible, um, turn to page 862. Uh, if you don't, sorry, if you have your Bible, it's not going to be 862. But there's a blue Bible underneath your seat. And if you pull that Bible out, it will be on page 862. Um, Benger is going gonna, is gonna to lead us through um, kind of chapter 2 uh, this morning. And so I'm going to read it. And here at Flourishing Grace, we believe that this is the word of God, and that every time it goes out, it does not ever come back empty. And so in honor and reverence to God's word, if you're able, would you please stand as I read it? I'm going to start in chapter 1, verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head and the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought, me up, brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay, salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks, Brett. Good morning. Good morning. How are we doing? You know what I love about this place? It's fall. Uh, people are back, and uh, the room is a little bit fuller than it has been, and still nobody is in the front row. So well done. You guys managed that. Um, Obviously, we need to add chairs in the back and not the front because everybody sits back there. Uh, if you haven't met yet, my name is Benjur. I'm one of the pastors here at Flourishing Grace. So if you're here for the first time uh, and we haven't met, welcome. My name is Benjur. Glad to meet you. Thanks for giving us a little bit of time on a Sunday. I know it takes uh, sometimes a little bit of courage to walk into a new place on a Sunday morning. And, and we're just glad that you're here. Uh, as Brett mentioned, we are in a series walking through the book of Jonah. And, and to give a little bit of a recap, um, I'm going to do the best I can because we need to dive in what we're going to talk about today. But if you've missed the first couple of weeks, um, here's the overall theme of Jonah. It says on the tagline that Jonah is a story of God's grace. The overall theme of Jonah is really God's faithfulness and lo steadfast love towards us towards you, towards Jonah, towards the sailors, towards the Ninevites. It is all about God's grace and his mercy and his gracious, generous pursuit of us. And we're going to see a little bit of that today. Um, if you don't know much about the, the story of Jonah, basically, um, you know that probably that the Jonah is the story of Jonah and the... 
Hey, there we go. Excellent. We're actually going to get there today. We've been through two weeks. Maybe you've been kind of grumpy because you're like, I thought there was a fish in here somewhere. We get there today. But really quick, last couple of weeks, Pastor Josh, our pastor for Preaching and Vision, has walked through chapter one. And we've seen Jonah, um, who is a prophet, but, but he's kind of a different prophet. Um, he, uh, he is called by God to go to Nineveh. And so Jonah decides to go in the very opposite direction. Um, the, there's, there's a lot of reasons why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh, but what the text tells us is it's not because the Ninevites were kind of the worst enemies, not just of Israel, but, but the whole known world at the time. The, the Ninevites, uh, it was the capital of Assyria, and this is the time of the Assyrian Empire known as the Neo-Assyrian Empire, kind of at the height of the Assyrian Empire. These were brutal Brutal people. In fact, it wasn't uncommon for leaders of like city-states, when, when small city-states would be attacked by the Assyrians, it wasn't uncommon for the leader, the king, whoever was leading that area or the leaders of that area to take their own life because they knew if they were captured, then they would be dismembered. Maybe they'd be turned into like lawn ornaments. This is not a joke. Like put on a spike, dead or alive. The, these were some of the most brutal people still to this day ever known as an empire. But that wasn't why Jonah fled. No, no, no. It, it may have been because Jonah didn't want God to forgive the Ninevites. Like, no, I, I know that God is merciful. I know that he is gracious. I know that he's slow to anger. Maybe my worst enemies are going to come to repentance and, and, and be forgiven. But that's not why. The text tells us that Jonah flees from the presence of the Lord. And that's going to be really important as we step into today. And what we saw last week was God's pursuit of Jonah. God pursues Jonah. Jo- Jonah goes down to Joppa, buys a ticket to go the furthest possible place he can, he can find from Nineveh. He goes down to Joppa. He goes down into the boat. The storm comes. He goes further down into the boat, into the hole. And finally, after all the sailors figure out what happens, Jonah says, no, you've got to throw me overboard. And that's the only way that this storm is going to stop. And so they finally throw Jonah overboard, and the sea stops. And these sailors are amazed, and they come to a point where they realize this God of Israel is is truly the God of heaven and earth and of the sea, and they worship him. And Jonah goes down, 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 kind of in a downward spiral. And finally, we get to the point today where Jonah finally gets swallowed by the fish. And as we've been walking through Jonah, one of the things you've heard Josh say is that not only is Jonah a story of God's grace, the story of God's grace towards Jonah, towards the sailors, towards the Ninevites, Jesus himself, and Josh, our pastor, our minister of students, Josh Gardner, we've got a lot of Joshes around here, is going to talk about this next week, so I'm not going to steal too much from it, but Jesus, in Matthew chapter 12, actually points back to Jonah and says, no, Jonah is a, is a sign for me. When, when he's asked for a sign, he points back and says, you're going to receive no sign but the sign of Jonah, and then he finishes that with, someone greater than Jonah is here. Jonah is, is a type of Jesus, meaning Jonah points to Jesus, but not in the sense where Jonah's so great, but something even greater than Jonah's going to be there, Jesus. No, no, no. Jonah is the opposite of Jesus. Jonah is told to go into enemy territory and preach to his worst enemies with the hope that they would be saved. And Jonah runs in the opposite direction. Jesus, on the other hand, wades into our sin, puts on human flesh, wades into our brokenness in order to live the life that you and I could never live, to die the death that we deserved, rise again from the dead, that we might live with him eternally. That's where we're going to kind of land today. But first, the fish. Now, 
some of you are going to be really disappointed because we get into Jonah. We're like, yeah, Jonah and the whale, Jonah and the fish, whatever it might be. Um, And there's only two verses. Jonah gets swallowed by the fish. Jonah gets spat up by the fish. That's it. Like Jonah isn't about the fish. And so we're not going to talk very much about the fish today, except we're going to talk a little bit about the predicament that Jonah was in. But first, I want to say a couple things about this fish. First of all, some of you are thinking about the fish, like, oh, like, is this really possible? Could somebody be swallowed by a fish and, and live to tell the tale? Well, well the answer is, is yes, we've seen actually stories of that happening, but, but this is what I want to bring up. When we look at the story of Jonah, the fish is actually not the most miraculous thing that happens in this story. It's not the most miraculous thing that happens around Jonah. We saw last week these sailors, hardened sailors who wanted nothing to do with the God of the universe, discover who the God of the universe is, this this new God that they had never heard about, and they come to a point where they worship him just, just like that. And then next week, spoiler alert, the Ninevites are going to repent. These hardened warriors, the whole city is going to repent. That is a miraculous thing. Those are far greater pictures of how God is working in this world, I believe, than the fish. The second thing I want to say about the fish is this. Listen, if you're coming to this and you're just kind of crossing your arms and you're like, Benjamin, I don't know about this, like, can I really trust this? Listen, I'm not going to argue with you today, okay? I just want to say something that one of my favorite preachers says about this. Jesus himself, as we've seen, pointed back to Jonah as a story that really happened, as a historical event. And so if the guy who can predict his own death and resurrection and then pull it off says that it's true, I'm going to go with that guy. But again, we're not going to argue about that today, but we're going to start, we're going to, we're going to walk through this prayer, but, but I want to start with the predicament that Jonah is in. A lot of times we think about the story of Jonah, and if you know the story of Jonah, we're like, yeah, there's the sailors, yeah, there's the fish, and then there's Nineveh, and we forget to pause right here. We forget to pause right here. We forget the fact that this must have been one of the more terrifying things that Jonah could ever imagine. If you read really carefully, as we even get into the prayer, um, Jonah prayed to the Lord from the belly of the fish. He was in the fish three days and three nights, and then he prayed. A lot of people take that to mean, okay, Jonah was in there for three days before he prayed. And there's a lot of speculation about what what this is about. And and yeah, this is speculation because we don't know exactly what happened in there and what he was feeling. Some people say, maybe Jonah was out. Like, like maybe he was in a coma. Like, he almost drowned, and then he was swallowed by this fish. Maybe he just barely survived, and it took him a few days to come to. And then eventually, when he realized where he was at, then he prayed. Now, I think, and again, this is speculation, so take it or leave it. But I think that Jonah, in this moment, if you can imagine what he's going through, he realized God is pursuing him. Him. And he realized the only way for the storm to stop and these sailors to be saved was to be thrown overboard. And he's like, that's fine, just end my life. Like, I'm done with God. I'm done with this whole thing. He's thrown overboard, and that's it. He's sinking. He's like, great, that's it. And then this fish comes along, this huge fish comes along and swallows him whole. Can you imagine how terrifying this would be? I wonder if in this moment where God was pursuing Jonah, Jonah kind of realizes what happened is actually angry with God in the midst of it. And I think it took him three days to finally get to a point where he was ready to talk to God. But whatever it was, Jonah finds himself in a predicament. Now the question is, is this predicament a problem or is it a blessing? The answer is yes. 
Now, to be fair to Jonah, Jonah was not in the belly of the fish thinking, thank God, thank you for sending this huge, this enormous, scary thing to swallow me whole. He wasn't thinking, oh, this is my salvation. He wasn't thinking, oh, I bet I'm just going to be here for three days, and then he's going to spit me safely onto dry land. Now, Jonah was terrified. Tim Keller talks about what Jonah was going through as a severe mercy. This is what he means by that. With 20-20 hindsight, Tim Keller says, we can see that the most important lessons we have learned in life are the result of God's severe mercies. They are events that were difficult or even excruciating at the time, but later came to yield more good in our lives than we could have foreseen. Fish swallowed Jonah because God was pursuing Jonah. This is a severe mercy. God is after Jonah's heart. Now, I want to be very careful here. Not every piece of suffering, not every bad thing can be pointed right back to God's severe mercy. Sometimes we suffer because of somebody else's sin against us, because we were hurt or we were abused. Sometimes we can't really piece it out at all together. It's it's a part of being in the broken world that we live in, and we suffer. Sometimes, if we're honest, we suffer as a result of our sin. But just about every follower of Jesus I've known that has followed Jesus for decades and maybe reached old age can look back on life and point to a time that they would call, as Tim Keller says, a severe mercy, that they would never want to go through again, that they hated when they were in the moment, that they would never wish even on their own worst enemies, but they look back on that and they say, that was a severe mercy. God taught me and brought me through so much. Now, this isn't the kind of thing where we should pick it apart and say, God, I'm suffering, what am I supposed to learn? Or if I can do this, can you stop? No, 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 no. This is all about God's mercy in Jonah's life. This is a severe mercy, and God used it in incredible ways. Now, as we dive into this prayer, we dive into the content of this prayer, I want, I want us to look at three things. And we're going to actually kind of skip to the end. I'm going I'm to talk about the first two things really quickly, and then the third one is going to be at the end of Jonah's prayer. But here's, here's the first thing I want us to see about this prayer. And this is a weird prayer. Like, am I allowed to say that about Scripture? Yeah. If you, if you open up Scripture and you walk through the pages of the Old Testament, you walk through the pages of the New Testament, sometimes you read things and you're like, Huh. God, are you sure? Like, what are you thinking? And here's what I mean by this. Um, when I was in college, like, I, I didn't really go to church until I was in college. I became a follower of Jesus in college. And as I was reading the Bible in kind of these Bible studies, I was reading the Bible for the first time. And so many times I wish I could go back to those moments in my life when I was reading things like Jonah for the first time. If you've never read Jonah and you walk through chapter one like we did the last couple of weeks, you're like, oh, Jonah, man. God's going to flick him off the face of the earth. Like you say no to God and you run in the other direction. I don't know much about God, but Jonah, he's toast. And then last week you find, man, God is after Jonah. And not to judge him and not to condemn him, but he's after Jonah to show him grace and mercy. And then there's this storm. You're like, ah, well, now it's all over for Jonah. He's going to be tossed overboard. And it's all this crazy stuff. And then he's swallowed by a fish. Can you believe it? And then he prays and finally you think, man, here in chapter 2, finally, Jonah gets it. Jonah gets it. Look at this prayer. He ends with salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah gets it. God saves him, spits him out on the dry land. Isn't that great? We're going to have a happily ever after story. Uh Uh-uh. 
If you've never read Jonah, spoiler alert right here, Jonah does not get it. You're going to be sorely disappointed over the next couple of weeks as we walk through how Jonah views God and how Jonah views God's mercy. This is a weird prayer. This is a weird prayer. But this, this, is, this is why I'm going over this. If we view the story of Jonah, if we view these four chapters in this short book, if we try to figure out what's going on through just the lens of Jonah, or we look at the sailors and, and we ask questions, what happened to the sailors? Like, the, the narrator never tells us what happens at the end of the story with the sailors. Like, what happened? Did, they, did they continue to follow God? Did they find somebody who knew more about him? Like, what happened? They're in the middle of nowhere. They're far away from Israel. Like, how do they know about this God of Israel? And then Jonah, like, like at the end of the next couple of weeks, the story's just going to end. We don't find out what happens to him. And the Ninevites, they eventually, spoiler alert, repent. But they don't stop being one of the most feared and gruesome empires known in the history of the world. If we're trying to figure out, man, how, how do I be like Jonah, or how do I not be like Jonah, and how do I kind of get God's grace, and how do I get, no, we're going to be completely confused. But if we view this through the lens of God's mercy, and you read this from start to finish, and you say, what is this telling me about God's faithfulness, which we sang about this morning, about God's mercy, about being pursued by God, that his mercy is running after us? If we try to read this book and say, what is this saying about God's mercy? We're going to find that God pours out his grace and his mercy and his steadfast love in ridiculous proportions on people like you and me who don't deserve it. I mean, that's the point of grace. We're going to talk about this in a minute, but that's the point of grace, isn't it? We don't deserve it. It's a gift. If we deserved it, it wouldn't be grace at all. Jonah is the story of God's grace. Jonah is a story of God's faithfulness. Jonah is a story of God's mercy poured out on people that he is pursuing because he loves them, not because they deserve it. And that, my friends, is why Jonah is also the story of you and me. This is a weird prayer. The second thing I want you to see is some good news. God answers this prayer. God answers this prayer. Why is that significant? It's because I believe this is a terrible prayer. Listen, I know this is hypercritical. Forgive me. If Jonah were here, I would say it to his face. All right, this is a terrible prayer. And this is why I say it. If you read through this, you may say, oh, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of good stuff in here. Everything Jonah says is true. Yes. If you read this, there's, the Psalms are all over this prayer. Jonah knew his Bible. He knew the Hebrew Bible. He knew the Psalms. He knew about God's goodness. But you read through it, and you start to pick it apart, and you say, man, there's a lot of what Jonah's doing in this prayer, not what God's doing. I did this. I called out to God. I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. There's a lot of thought about, man, what is, what is this prayer about? Some people think that this prayer was prayed afterwards, like maybe the first seven verses were actually Jonah's reflection on, on how he prayed and how he was desperate in the belly. I believe, and this is, again, speculation, that this accurately represents Jonah's prayer because it is a religious prayer, but it is not a prayer that reflects a relationship with God. But here's the good news, okay? All that being said, I'm not criticizing because I see myself in Jonah so much. God answers his prayer. God answers his prayer. Because God doesn't answer our prayer because of the content of our prayers. God doesn't answer our prayers because of our goodness or our faithfulness. God answers our prayers because of his goodness and his faithfulness. 
We don't have to come up with all these these and thous and figure it out. We don't have to get our lives together before we come to church or before we pray to God. We don't have to be in a predicament and say, okay, well, i got to get at least like three Sundays of church in and some Bible reading in, and then maybe God will answer our prayers. No, 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 no. God hears us because of his goodness and his faithfulness, not because of our own. And friends, that is good news. It is good news because I see myself so much in Jonah. Now, the last thing we're going to spend most of the time on this morning, the last thing I want you to see, again, we're skipping to the end, is this. Jonah prays, starting in verse 8. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the, hope of th- with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And this is the point where many of us think, but Jonah gets it. These five words, salvation belongs to the Lord, have been referred to by many as the gospel in five words. What is the gospel? The gospel isn't like a plan for us to do. The gospel literally means good news. Heralds in ancient times, when, when something great happened with a kingdom, maybe a, a king's son or daughter was born, or maybe there's a war and the war has been won and the kingdom is safe, a herald would run back to preach, to tell, to herald the good news. And something incredible has happened. That's what the good news is. How is this phrase, these five words, salvation belongs to the Lord, good news? Well, there's a couple of things I want to point out. One, grace was not our idea, it was God's idea. Grace was God's idea. This is a story of God's grace. And here's what I mean by that. Grace is just simply an undeserved gift. Grace, this word on its own, is just something that is given, that is merit. It is, it is a blessing, but it is, it is not deserved. And when you read through the New Testament, grace is often referred to as the gift of salvation, which was purchased for us, not by anything that we did, but by Jesus and what he accomplished for us on the cross. Grace was God's idea. Paul in Ephesians um, chapter 1, Paul talks about um, this way, and this is what I mean by this. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. It'll be up on the screen. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us. We didn't choose him. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Hold on to that phrase. That we should be holy and blameless before him in love, in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Before the foundations of the world. It's not like Genesis 3 happened where Adam and Eve sinned and God's like, I didn't see that coming. Man, Jesus, do you have a plan B? Can you work something together? Like, can we workshop something? Can you figure out? We got to figure this out because sin entered the world. No, before the foundation of the world, before you were ever a glimmer in your parents' eye, before you ever sinned, God knew what it would take to defeat death, to earn your salvation, to pay the debt that we deserve to pay, which is death. Jesus did that for us. And before the foundation of the world, this was God's idea. It's not this kind of thing where we have to come, you know, some of the way, and it's our idea, and God, maybe if we do enough, you're going to save us. No, no, no. This was God's idea. We are saved because of God's grace, because of the riches of his grace. 
not because of anything we did. This was God's idea. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It doesn't belong to us. It wasn't our idea. It's not something that we accomplished. I feel like I'm repeating myself because it's so important. This is something that was God's idea. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Second thing I want to see is in Colossians chapter 1, and is this, that Jesus, that in God, in Jesus, is both the standard for holiness and the means by which we are holy. I want to I unpack this a little bit because I know that's a math hole full. First of all, this idea of holiness, I think um, we, we've gotten a little bit confused in this because we hear holy and we think about holy rulers or somebody who's like perfect. No, 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 no. The standard for holiness is God. Jesus said himself in Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, be perfect therefore as your heavenly Father is perfect. God is the standard. God is holy. God is righteous. He is perfect. And we cannot stand in his presence unclean because and we, would, we would just be obliterated by his holiness. And, and what's crazy, like I've, I've lived in Colorado, I've lived here in Utah, uh, this, this idea seems to be a little bit more prevalent. Like we understand, like I'll talk to people, I'll go to Costco and I'll be buying a ridiculous amount of things for like a newcomer's dinner or something like that. And they'll say, what's going on? And it's a great opportunity to tell them about flourishing grace. I'm like, you should join us. I'm like, nah, if I walk through your door, this is honestly been told to me word for word. If I walked through your doors, it would be struck by lightning and you wouldn't have a church anymore. Like people have told me this. There's a part of us where we intuitively understand this, that because we are not holy, because we, what we have done because of our sin, we cannot stand in the presence of God. However, this is where we get this wrong. We think all too often that because of that, we've got to make up some ground. We've got to work harder. We've got to try a little harder to do a little bit better. No, no, no. That's not what Paul says here in Colossians chapter 1. This is what he says. Chapter 1, verse 21, it'll be on the screen. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, like you are so much an enemy of God, you are alienated from God. You're hostile in mind towards him, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his body, meaning Jesus' body, in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Jesus is both the standard of holiness and the means by which we can stand before God and have God say, well done, my good and faithful servant. You see, when Jesus died for us on the cross, rose again from the dead, it wasn't just that he forgave us of our sins, that he purchased for us the redemption from our sins, which he absolutely did. He also, the big word is imputed to us. He clothed us with literally his righteousness so that when we stand before God, if we put our trust in Jesus, when we stand before God, God does not see our deeds. He does not see our sin. He sees, he sees Jesus works for us on our behalf. Is what Jesus did for us. And he looks at us and he sees Jesus works in me. And we are presented to God by Jesus as holy and blameless and above reproach. I'm not, friends. That's not me. But because of what Jesus accomplished for me on my behalf, he presents me and he can present you if you put your trust in him as holy and blameless. Now here this is why this is important. Even people who grew up in church, even people who say, yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus, so many times when we have seasons or we have done something where we say, man, I, I have fallen short. Benjamin, you don't know what I've done. I've not just run. I've run as fast as I can. We somehow think we have to make up ground. And then 
maybe we can get close enough that God will love us again. That's not what this says at all. Yes, Jesus is the standard. We stand before God. And, and, and when we look to him in his, our, in his holiness, we say, I am not. I am unclean. But Jesus, because he died for you and he died for me and he rose again from the dead, we stand before him and he clothes us with his righteousness and he presents us as holy and blameless. This is why it's so important that salvation was God's idea. He knew before the foundations of the world that sin would enter the world, that you and I would sin, that we would stand before God, we would be unclean, we could not be in his presence. In the same breath, he also decided to come and die for you and me and be the means by which not only our sin would be cleansed, but we would stand before God as holy and blameless. It's nothing we do. Friends, if you are striving this morning, if you've come in here and, and maybe you're like, yeah, I've got to get back to church and I've got to do these things. Maybe you're like, ah, I, need, I need a better job. I need things to go better. I need God to hear my prayers, so I'm going to go back to church. Listen, I'm glad that you're here. But you don't accomplish those things. Jesus has, has accomplished those things on your behalf. Now, some of us, I believe, if salvation belongs to the Lord, what we need to do is we need to hand salvation back to God. Here's what I mean by that. It might be that we need to hand salvation back to God like Jonah needed to. Right? Jonah, his problem, here's the weird thing about Jonah. Jonah didn't doubt God's salvation. Jonah didn't doubt God's ability to save him. Like, it was not a surprise to Jonah that God was pursuing him. Because, yeah, he knows that God is faithful. He knows that God is merciful. The issue with Jonah is he thought God was a little bit too merciful. Not those people. No, 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 no. You can't save the Ninevites. Jonah held on to salvation, wishing that he had a little bit more say over who God would show mercy to and who God wouldn't. Or, it might be that you need to hand salvation back to God because you have been trying to do it yourself. You would say, Benjamin, I'm like Jonah. I need to do better. I need to work harder. And then maybe God will give me a second chance. No, 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 that's not how it works at all. This was God's idea, so you need to hand it back to God because he will graciously, lovingly, mercifully welcome you with open arms. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to work hard for it. You just have to receive it. Some of you need to give it back because you've given it to some, something else. You have felt that emptiness. You have felt uh, that brokenness, and you have called on other things besides God to save you. You've tried to fill that emptiness with a career. Maybe if I could just accomplish more, then I will feel okay. Maybe if I accumulate enough wealth, I will feel okay. Or maybe you put all your hopes and dreams uh, on your spouse or a future spouse. And you're like, they will complete me. They will, will make me happier. They will fulfill me. Friends, that will crush your spouse. Maybe you put all your hopes on being a good parent. Or maybe you've given yourself to addiction. And that is what you were hoping to numb the pain. No, we need to hand salvation back to God because it is God's idea. Salvation belongs to the Lord and he is merciful and he is pursuing you because he loves you. Now, as we wrap up, again, one of the things that we've been saying is that something greater than Jonah is here and that something is Jesus. Yeah, this is a weird prayer. Yeah, as we, we read through this and we get to the end of it, 
And then all of a sudden, Jonah is spat out on dry land. We're like, oh, that's it. That's the fish. But here's what I want you to see as we wrap up. Jonah, even in the midst of his prayer, never repents. Did you notice that? He never comes to a place where he's like, yep, I was wrong. God was right. Whatever that looks like for him. To repent is really just simply to agree with God about our own sin. So yeah, yeah. That's me, God. I know you've got, I know you said not to do that, and I did. Listen, I'm sorry. Can you go in the other direction? Say, God, I'm going to go your way this time. Jonah never comes to the end of himself and says, God, I I give up. It's your way from now on. I, I, I know. However, there's a point in time when Jesus came to the end of himself, but in a different way. Not just be, not because of his own sin, but because of our sin. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, we'll see this in uh, Mark chapter 14, comes to the end of himself and prays a prayer. This is what happened. Mark 14, verse 32. And they, meaning Jesus and his followers, went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. You see, Jesus, this was the night that Jesus would be betrayed, would be arrested, would be tried in a sham trial, and the next day crucified on a cross for you and me. He knew what was coming. And so he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here while I watch. Remain here and watch. And then going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Now I'll stop right here. This is Jesus, second person of the Trinity, Messiah who came to save you and me, 100% God, 100% human, put on human flesh. And he comes to the end of himself, not because he's anything less than God, but because He has put on human flesh and taken on those limitations. And he knew before the foundations of the world, we've already talked about this, he knew what it would take, but he comes to this point and he is sorrowful, not just because of the physical uh, torture that he is going to endure, but because he is going to bear the weight of your sin and my sin. He's going to bear the wrath of God against all sin. And he says, God, if there's any other way, now's the time to pull that trigger. If there's any other way, is there a plan B? Can we do something else? He has come to the end of himself. And he says this, yet not what I will, but what you will. When Jonah prays, it's because he is in a predicament because of his own sin, because of his own running from God, because God has pursued him. When Jesus prayed, it's not because he is running away from the presence of the Lord, but because he has run straight into God's will for his life, on this, to this mission. He put on flesh, he waded into your brokenness and my brokenness, and he chose to climb upon that cross and die the death that you and I deserve, that we might be forgiven. And he rose again from the dead three days later. Jesus didn't run away. He ran straight into the trouble because of his great love for us, because of his mercy, because of his faithfulness, because of his goodness, because of his steadfast love. Friends, 
Some of you are in the place that Jonah finds himself. You've come in here and you are troubled. And when I talk about severe mercies, you, you scoff because you say, man, this is terrible. You know that God is pursuing you. Hear me well. If that is you, God is not pursuing you with condemnation. God is pursuing you with kindness. And in the midst of it, it's like Tim Keller said, at 2020 vision, we can look back. Hindsight is 2020. And I pray that one day you will. But God is pursuing you. Hear me well. Not to condemn, but to love you and pursue you and forgive you. Right, we all know the verse in John 3.16. It's not going to be up there on the screen. But in John 3.16, Jesus says this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Friends, we know that verse, but sometimes we forget what comes after it. John 3, 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Friends, God is pursuing you because he loves you. Jesus wades into our mess. He wades into our sin. He wades into our brokenness, not to condemn, but to save. And salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah got that right, but it meant so much more than he could ever imagine. It was God's idea. It is God who provides the means. And this morning, all you have to do is receive that. Maybe for the first time today. Maybe you've been running. Maybe you've been trying to earn this on your own. If you have come to this morning, you've realized, I've never received that gift. Friends, today, August 21st, is a great day begin a relationship with Jesus. And it's not something you ever do. It is just simply something you receive. God pursues us because he loves us. And Jesus pursued us by climbing up on that cross, dying for us and rising again three days later. May we be the kind of church that lays a hold of this. May we be the kind of church that loves the mission that God has sent us on, that we would not run away, but we would take this gospel in five words that salvation belongs to the Lord and we would run towards the mess, that we would run towards the fire, that we would run towards the brokenness because that's what Jesus did for us. And when we come to the end of ourselves, may it not be because of our own sin, but because we don't know what to do next and so we just simply say, this is too much, yet not what I will, but what you will, God. Friends, that is my prayer for us as a family. Would we take hold of that and would we live that out? Let me pray for us. God, I have nothing in this to claim in this world but Christ. I have nothing to claim but what you have done for me by sending your son Jesus die on my behalf. And so, God, I stand here and I lay claim of your promises. I thank you for pursuing me. God, we thank you for pursuing us. Father, for those where this may have just clicked for the first time, where, where you and your spirit are speaking to us and nudging us and saying, I am here and I am pursuing you not to condemn, but because I love you. I have come to bring you salvation because salvation belongs to me. Father, would you speak to us? Would you help us to surrender our lives to you?
Thank you for the gift of Jesus. Thank you that Jonah points towards him. Thank you that he came to die for us. Father, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Let all the people say, amen.